This Week in Startups is brought to you by Real Good Foods is modernizing frozen foods and has become one of the fastest growing food brands in the US. Everything Real Good Foods makes is low in carbs, high in protein and made from real food ingredients. From enchiladas to Italian entrees to breakfasts and more. Real Good Foods can be found in the freezer section of your local grocery store, Walmart or Costco. Masterworks, the first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. Twist listeners can skip the 30,000 person waitlist by going to masterworks.io and using promo code TWIST. And Lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at lemon.io. Go to lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. All right, everybody, the world has gone completely bonkers. Trump is launching a social media company and he's going to spack it. Absolutely bizarre. We're living in an upside down world because in addition to that SPAC happening, WeWork has finally gone public and the stock is up 10%. And since everything is going absolutely bonkers, I thought we'd bring a guest on uh, who's doing a great job with his new newsletter. You know, Eric Newcomer, he's been on the pod four times. Uh, he was a reporter at Bloomberg, Ben with the information. Now he's on his own. This is his fifth appearance. Coincidentally, Eric's last appearance was on November 11, 2016, right after Trump got elected. Uh, and uh, on that episode, the amazing Molly Wood and Eric joined me to reflect on Trump winning the election. And today, we're going to talk about Trump today. Welcome back to the program, Eric. Thanks for having me. I, now I'm uh, independent. I can say whatever I want. And finally, Absolutely, uh, yes. I don't have my Bloomberg paranoia or, you know, information uh, yeah, rules. So hopefully well, it'll you, be you basically went from before. like a, a super stringent big company bloomberg well i was with the information first i was the first oh, employee was the information, information bloomberg oh, okay. yeah i was with the information a year and a half and then i went to bloomberg which is even more yeah buttoned up buttoned up yeah and uh now people can go to newcomer dot co yeah dot co n-e-w-c-o-m-e-r dot co and you can subscribe to your amazing substack newsletter you had a great story in there uh about the gitlab uh ipo we'll get to that in our yeah. news stories uh, but you've got a bunch of people subscribing or is this able yeah, I, to I have 11,000 uh, plus total email lists and I have 1300 people paying me, you know, uh, $15 a month or $150 a year. So it's so you're making like more than, than you were yeah, at going, Bloomberg. It's good. That's incredible. This is yeah. like independent journalism is and working. It, you know, about half the posts are paid and half are free. It's sort of a mix. I mean, it's on Substack, which has sort of pioneered this model of, you know, sort of a half paywall. And you weren't part of the group of people that Substack paid to move over there, correct? Correct. I mean, they offered me like a very small advance, but um, it didn't even make sense to like get tied up it. with them. And, you know, ultimately you're running your own business. And so this isn't about the advance. It's how, about, how are you enjoying that versus working? Um, do you feel you're doing better work working for yourself being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you have a much more personal relationship uh, with your readers, I think. You know, I like writing for insiders. So it's very much, you know, for founders, venture capitalists, sort of people really in the industry. So it's nice. You know, even at Bloomberg, you know, you're sort of writing for like finance people and trying to explain, you know, I don't want to have to say who Bill Gurley is. Like, if you don't right, know who he is, it's get to sort it. of like, you're not the audience, you know, it's for like, so yeah, I like that. You know, I like mixing sort of reporting and opinion. So it's a blast. I mean, it's a lot more work because I'm editing my own stuff and, you know. You, right. you know, you have to keep putting content out. 
Yeah, there's no days off, right? I mean, if you, I right, mean, I guess you could take a week off. <laughs> I took, I took two weeks off actually, and you know, I was like, you know, this is a premium business, like. I'll take a vacation, but, yeah. but yeah, like a holiday weekend is a hassle because then you need to play catch up and you're behind and everything. Ah, right. Yeah. This is where you will wind up hiring a stringer to <laughs> do an extra day a week for you. And then right. suddenly you're going to have 10 people working for you. And no, I, after this all, yeah, I definitely need a uh, Jason Calcanis uh, lessons. I feel like you've, you've done uh, if you ever need things. advice on building media brands, I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, employees are really annoying. <laughs> Be careful, especially writers. Writers right. are the oh most difficult to manage. Right. Uh, just super opinionated, think they know better than everybody. And in many cases, they're, you know, they kind of self-select for very intelligent people who are love to debate. So you put 20 of them in a room, you know, right. just think about what Jessica Lesson is dealing with, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, with all those like incredible writers, like it's a, I think what's my interesting theory about this substackification and, you know, indie, the indie journalist thing. Yeah is that I think it's going to create a little more empathy between the tech industry and the writers in that you now as an entrepreneur are going to have a level of empathy and be thinking about business and dealing with business issues, as opposed to just being like in the ivory tower and just, you know, yeah, uh, I, I agree with you on sort of twofold, or at least this has been my experience. One is sort of the reason you're giving, you know, you're running your own business, you sort of realize, yeah, that you have to build something, <laughs> you know, yep. you you have a clearer sense of the customer. There are lots of reasons that makes you more aligned. But I also just think the Substack model is much more a mix of reporting and opinion. And there's a way that sort of the objective journalistic style allows for these sort of positions that, no, you know, they're not fully baked positions. So you're writing with an inherent narrative that no one actually, it's, you don't have to fully think through it. Whereas if you have to write right. an essay and make an argument, you have to sort of think through what you actually believe, which then makes you understand sort of the entrepreneur point of view a little bit. Yeah. I, and I think the connective tissue then becomes not us versus the New York times, which has now become the New York anti-tech times. Like they're literally hiring journalists based on how aggressively they will go after tech companies, right? Like that's literally when they made the announcement about the last two, they were specifically saying like, we want journalists who are going to hold Truth to power, power, power to truth, well, whatever. Good. I mean, I like the New York Times. I'll defend the New York Times. But yeah, it just feels like when you're in the industry that they're just, it's, it feels like they don't write anything that is in any way complimentary or objective about tech. It's just all the dark stuff. So it's just, it's like a percentage thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, me. the media goes through moods and their story. You know, there was a period where it was all about shiny gadgets, but there, I mean, you go to the verge, it's still like, oh, people excited about. Yeah. an iPhone. So it exists. Um, yeah. If anything, I'm sort of, I, I feel like we should get to a point where there's the media, which is just like reporters, you know what right. I mean? And everybody else, opinion writers, columnists, whatever, we should just treat them like influencers online. And like, if anything, the elevated status, I think is hurting reporters because it allow or hurting sort of the sort of intelligentsia of media yes. commentators. Because then people on Twitter can be like, Oh, you're a blue check or whatever. It's just like, yes. no, I'm one person with an audience yeah. talking just like if Andreessen talked or whatever. And then you can evaluate, you know, their actual values that the New York times columnists hold, which is like, I'm not invested in the stuff I cover, blah, blah, blah. But, but right. I mean, you're, you're, you're a talker now, you know what I mean? I mean, you're, yeah. a, so I, I just rather see that whole world collapse so that you guys can stop saying the media, you know, it's just like, Oh, you know, we're, we're saying things. You're we're going to have to put them into different buckets, right? Because the, the average consumer doesn't know the difference between the opinion page and opinion right. versus reporting. And I think right. that's why I think the opinion page at the New York Times 
should literally be like an right. attachment to it, a exactly. separate Just format. Like, and the, it needs to have like these are opinions. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. The confusion between those I, uh, reporters should be treated as different. They're trying mostly trying to get information. Obviously, they yes. they have bias, but too much of the conversation is this weird mishmash of people not knowing the difference between sort yeah. of a columnist and a reporter. All right. Well, let's start giving our opinions now since we're just doing random acts of journalism here. Uh, Donald Trump just announced his new company, TMTG, or Trump Media and Technology Group. And they're launching an app called Truth Social. You can go to the App Store and search for it. And you can, I didn't, I've never seen this before, but I guess in the App Store, you can pre uh, install an app or pre um, sign up for it. That's kind of a cool feature. And uh, they're going public via a SPAC. Uh, the SPAC is called Digital World Acquisition Corp. It's currently trading under dollar DWAC. The stock went up 160% on the news Thursday morning, and uh, it was briefly halted around noon Eastern as it became a trending stock on Wall Street bets. Uh, so let's break it down here. According to the press release, Trump Media and Technology Group's mission is to create a rival to the liberal media consortium and fight back against the big tech companies of Silicon Valley which have used their unilateral power to silence opposing views in America. Initial value of TMTG will be $875 million. There's also a potential earnout of $825 million in additional shares. That would add the valuation up to $1.7 billion. Uh, what's your take on this, Eric? Do you think this could in any way be successful? I, I'm skeptical just because... You know, the first people you attract to a super niche conservative platform, I mean, this is the problem, you know, Gab had this problem, are going to be really terrible. You know, it's going to be the people who are really on the edge. And if they don't want to be censoring people, all of a sudden, they're just going to have a huge content moderation challenge. I mean, mm. it's sort of the argument that Facebook makes, right? Being really big, they have the talent, skill, they've hired a bunch of people to moderate their platform, you know? TikTok puts a lot of work into moderating itself and will sort of this new app be able to, will they have the infrastructure or is it much more sort of uh yeah, wall street bets stock play? I, I, you know, I, that's my initial reaction. I don't know. What do you, do you have, what do you have a bull case for this thing or? Well, um, if Trump remains off of these platforms, right? Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, if the, um, the board of Facebook, their, you know, independent Supreme Court does not reinstate Trump. Uh, people love Trump content. Uh, and they will probably create accounts. I could but see that's a website. I mean, you can go to a website right now and see, you know, it, why does it need yeah. to be an, well, app? an app? And so, I would say you know. because the app would be, you know, interactive two way, and then all the constituents and whack pack around him would be creating content too. So you basically get all of the people, you know, these lost children who were kicked off of all the platforms now have a place to live. And so he did have whatever 70 million people vote for him, 10%, 20% of them still really love him and weren't voting just because, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they wanted a Republican and, and not Hillary. So yeah, maybe, maybe they get to yeah, five, I mean, 10 million what? people. Um, but they Go don't know Goop what they're doing. Exists. You know, there are uh, Glossier, there are brands that are oriented around far less famous people than Trump. So I yeah. guess there's certainly a draw, you know, a single really popular person can build a company around them. But, you know, running a company is hard. Moderating is challenging. The people they're going to attract are going to be 
sort Weirdos. of the worst of the worst. Yeah. Um, right. And how do they get mainstream Republicans or regular normie sort of Trump fans on there? Like, I feel like there are, there are a lot of challenges. And then obviously Trump himself is not a great like executor, uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what is he? He's like Trump University, Trump stakes, Trump water, Trump airlines, everything he touches. He's he's good at marketing. So we're going to talk about it right now. The stock's going to go up, but are, is he, you know, he hasn't proven any capability to run a company, let alone a technology company. Yeah. And and the moderation, I think is a really good point because didn't, is it Gab was the other one that uh, on January 6th, they banned from all of the app stores, like basically. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I think Gab got banned. So, you know, they they have some, ins- if this becomes like Insurrection 2.0 planning platform, <laughs> like it's going to get bounced off of the app stores again. Right. Uh, that's going to be a disaster. I, I think there's something really horrible about this as well in terms of using the SPAC vehicle, because now it's going to be a money grab. Th- this is going to go, you know, to $50 a share, people are going to lose money, it's going to become a meme stock. Um, I, I could, yeah, well, that's I, a I recurring could... theme of Trump world, right? Like, I mean, there are all these games to keep donors, you know, contributing yeah. uh, when they didn't even realize it paying more far more than they could afford. So the idea that Trump world is willing to extract um, money from loyal followers is nothing new and clearly something that he's willing to do. So And here's the thing, you know, tech companies generally have a positioning or a point of view in terms of product, right? Twitter was the short updates, you know, Facebook was the news feed, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, each Instagram filters, everybody had their own kind of technological innovation. This is done, uh, it looks like they just forked Mastodon, which is an open source Twitter, basically competitor. So it looks like they have zero technology behind this. They literally just threw this thing together, put lipstick on a pig. Right. And forked the open source version of Twitter. Right. Um, and they literally didn't even put, they didn't have the courtesy to put in the open source licenses. So I think this is a disaster. My professional opinion is this thing will fail. It'll have five or 10 million people and anybody who puts money into it will lose all their money. So if you're a better in the public, this is probably the worst. <laughs> Unless you're like a sophisticated gambler, like day trading, and you know how to pump these things on Reddit, like, I would stay far away from this and buy Amazon or Disney or Tesla stock if you really like want to buy a stock. Like buy one that actually has competent management. We all know how hard it is to eat healthy when you're grinding on product sprints and trying to meet crazy deadlines. Well, now there's an innovative food company trying to help. Real Good Foods is one of the fastest growing frozen food brands in the U.S. They're making nutritious foods more accessible to improve human health. And they make all the food you love. Mexican, Italian, breakfast sandwiches, pizzas, and more. Everything is 100% grain-free, low in carbs, high in protein, and best part, made from real food ingredients. They are available in the freezer section of Costco, Walmart, Target, and 90% of grocery stores nationwide. When I found out about them, I went into my Instacart, I went out to Amazon, they were everywhere, and we've been eating the pizza, it's delicious. Plus, you can get them delivered same day by Instacart. Real Good Foods is healthy, convenient, and tasty. It's perfect for any lifestyle. Plus, part of their mission is to support food banks across the U.S., and they have a goal of donating 1 million nutritious meals. Nicely done, Real Good Foods. So, go to realgoodfoods.com and use the code TWIST for $15 off. Learn more and follow at Real Good Foods on social media or go to 
therealgoodfoods.com and use that code twist to get $15 off. All right, WeWork finally went public Thursday via SPAC and the stock is up 10% as of this taping. Back in 2019, we had the famous WeWork S1, all kinds of shenanigans in that. Um, Adam Newman was buying buildings, then leasing them back. He was selling the trademark We to WeWork for $5 million. The malfeasance was just brutal and disgusting. Um, if you haven't seen the documentary, it was... You've seen the documentary, I take it, the Hulu documentary? Um, well, I read the book. Uh, ah. This is a <laughs> classic reporter. Uh, I, I'm not... I don't think I actually have seen the documentary, but I read yeah. uh, Elliot Marine's uh, book on. Yeah, and then Cult there was Reeves' Leaf. book, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Billion Dollar that. Loser, yeah. The Epic uh, Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. We had him on episode 1130. Um, and they were going to go out at 47 billion. Um, and uh, that was in mid 2019. And according to a Barron's article from March, quote, SoftBank holds about 65% of the equity in WeWork. Uh, and so. I don't see what the market cap here is right now, but if they own 65%, uh, according to CNBC, it's at 9 billion, right? So they now, if uh, I guess if it was, we rounded up to 10, that's a $6 billion or so. And do we know how much WeWork pumped into it? Are they actually going to come out of this even? Uh, didn't they put in like, I thought it was at least, I thought it was like a 9 billion, 10 billion, something. I yeah. mean, they put a ton of money in. They might um, be halfway there, which is really super well, interesting. Well, you have to be able to exit, obviously. Yes. If you own that much of a company. Oh. And right. I'm sure a bunch of the value is predicated on SoftBank's perceived commitment to it. They yes. start selling out. It'll put a lot Actually, of downward SoftBank pressure on SoftBank invested $18.5 Oh, my God. Oh, my Lord. So they got to yeah. triple up here. The company's got to become right. more $27 billion for them to break even. Well, yeah. Uh, but you know what? To get a save, to save a third of your money on your worst investment, Pretty good, right? Uh, expected revenues three point two billion, uh, over four hundred fifty thousand members. I mean, it's not a terrible business. I actually think. I'm curious what you think. Isn't this business perfectly aligned for the, you know, work from home hybrid, right. where people are going to need to use space on a more flexible basis? Well, that's the irony of the whole situation, right? You know, if if he committed, if Adam Newman had committed slightly less fraud, had made it to the pandemic, this would seem like a smart business to have emerging from the pandemic, you would have even had sort of this nice reset period where you could have sort of fired a bunch of people, cleaned up the business. You know, mm -hmm. there is an alternative storyline where if he just held on slightly more normally, he could have like <laughs> come out of the pandemic and pitched the business as having, you know, an excuse for why it suffered a bunch of losses and layoffs. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is a great time for WeWork. Uh, we're seeing more people like myself become sort of solo entrepreneurs so the you know people want offices and and also just temporary workspace and companies are distributed so the the thesis i mean it was always sort of a cool idea yeah. i mean and that's what becomes dangerous right the idea is so gripping and compelling and socially resonant that people stop paying attention to the financials and the losses and unit you know, economics the mechanic. exactly it's yeah. easy to just like oh it's a story stock like and in this environment, that can go forever. And obviously, Adam Newman uh, pushed that theory too far. Yeah, I mean, if you, you, you need only look at the on-demand economy, which they were part of with Uber, Postmates, Lyft, DoorDash, Airbnb. The on-demand economy really, you know, was super promising because users loved it. It was a great product. All of them were great products. But we had things like Lux, the valet that would meet you anywhere and park your car for less than it cost to park it in a lot. And right. the economics there didn't work. 
you know, uh, some food delivery didn't work until they put minimums. Instacart right. wasn't working. They had to put a membership fee on. And so it's sort of like the great reckoning of unit economics feels like it's upon us. And if right. You look still at, feel, uh, yeah. I mean, there was an interesting column. Uh, Grant, Greg Bensinger at the New York Times used to be the Wall Street Journal uh, beat reporter had a smart column on Uber and sort of the reckoning on unit economics. I mean, we're still seeing that play out. I mean, it's been a terrible experience getting Uber and yeah. in some of these cities. And obviously it's a two-sided marketplace and they have to be able to get drivers and that drives up, you know, uh, price. So I think that, and I mean, Instacart is still a private company and they really saw an advantage from the pandemic. So I think it's so possible there's, there's more of a reckoning there, but you know, we work as reset expectations and yeah. and so hopefully there's well, and even there's uber and lyft are there. like this is the quarter where they just started to hit you know like a reasonable break even or a modified ebitda and actually if you raise the prices this is what i always said like if they were losing 50 cents a ride if you raise the price a buck or two now they're wildly profitable like why don't they just raise it a buck or two and they've been doing that and they cut their staffs you know at Airbnb. i think the, pro- the reason i is i think is just they were predicated on being able to disrupt transportation wholesale, which required underpricing. Yes. Uh, you know, people are very price sensitive. And so if you want to show a big TAM, you need to keep prices low. And they wanted to downplay the inherent trade-off between their profitability and the potential TAM. And so I think that's why they delayed for so long. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, they they were trying to make Uber Pool and Lyft Line work, and maybe there was something there. Maybe the algorithm could make it work, and it, it maybe that those products just don't Definitely work. Definitely not. And don't work. Use the. I mean, my my friend Tom Dotan at Business Insider wrote a piece basically about this. I mean, the pandemic was definitely like a cover to get rid of Pool, which wasn't yes. really working. And they had pitched for years. I mean, that was supposed to be the future of the business, sort of more sustainable, lower prices. Well, it would build liquidity, right? Because you'd have so right. many more cars right. on the road and they would always be running. Yeah. I mean, I um, love the vision, but it doesn't work. Vision was I mean, good. They didn't, yeah. they didn't they, or at least Dara couldn't execute it. Execute it. Yeah. And there's other visions that work easier. So, you know, do you just capture the top 50% of the market or the top 60% of the market and say, you know what? For people who are in the bottom third, yeah, public transportation is a better option at $3. There's not going to be a 3 or $4 Uber. The minimum in Uber is going to be a, in a Lyft is going to be seven or eight bucks. Are you uh, are you all sold out of Uber? No, I, I mean I I still believe the company is going to do well because if they weren't the leader, like if I was in Lyft, I might feel slightly differently about it. But because they have the trucking business, the eats business, and Uber, I mean, have sold a lot of it before they went public. Uh, but I think the company will be you know they're growing twenty thirty percent a year on big numbers, and I think you know they have the perfect guy in there in terms of optimiz- optimizing it. He's like really good at that. And they've got, you know, whatever it is, $14 billion you, worth of equity in other companies and a big balance sheet. So I think they'll be I the know last this is your show, standing. but do you ever see Travis yeah. anymore? Uh, you know, I try not to talk about Travis, but we've remained <laughs> friends and we see each other. Yes. Um, hmm. And so I just, you know, he is being very low key and does not want to talk about Cloud Kitchens. But, uh, you know. He's, yeah, every uh, friend of his I talk to, they're, they're extremely... They claim to know nothing about cloud kitchens, whether that's I mean, I, I know a lot, not. but I know nothing. Um, well, here's the thing, you know, like, he, he really helped make my career. I helped him, obviously, uh, in a minor way. And, um, you know, he got, you know, really destroyed. And he wants to focus on his business. So focus right. on your business. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I respect that he's got his head down and, and he's just working. But, you know, I, I, I think he will build a business with cloud kitchens that will be 
uh, as big or bigger than Uber. Uh, and hmm. you know, I, I, I still believe. I don't believe that's the consensus view. I mean, I, I have no idea, but yeah, it'll be. I mean, the pandemic was obviously talked about. I mean, if WeWork uh, is a cool coming out of the pandemic story, I mean, Cloud Kitchens with these, you know, ghost kitchens. Yeah. was built for the pandemic where food delivery goes crazy you, restaurants you, are shutting down so yeah i think your instincts are probably absolutely correct heads up the days of the 60 40 portfolio might be over you know 60 percent stocks 40 percent bonds bank of america and goldman sachs both agree mounting pressures from inflation and the fed's upcoming tapering deadline might slow down the economy and could cause trouble for stocks and bonds i think we all know that so diversifying is more important than ever it's also important to look at alternative assets uncorrelated to the stock market like contemporary art according to our friends at masterworks many savvy investors you might know some hold 10 to 30 percent of their net worth in art and here's why well, according to Masterworks Research, contemporary art appreciated 14% annually between 1990 and 2020. It's a pretty good 30-year run, if I do say so. Now, you can invest in blue-chip art without paying tens of millions of dollars. Masterworks makes investing in iconic art like trading stocks online. They securitize a multi-million dollar painting, and then they sell shares to investors. I've done it. It's really easy. And they just raised $110 million Series A with a valuation north of $1 billion. Congratulations on becoming a unicorn. And guess what? Twist listeners get to skip the very long wait list to get on Masterworks. If you want to invest, just go to masterworks.io slash twist to get priority access. That's masterworks.io slash twist. And make sure you read the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. All right, let's get into your uh, recent story. This is a, a pretty crazy story. Everybody knows GitLab, GitLab went public. GitLab uh, was yeah, essentially there's, there's GitHub and GitLab. GitLab you know? yes. <laughs> uh, so explain to people the difference between the two companies. Sure. Obviously, we know that GitLab uh, recently went public, uh, and it was a massive windfall for a lot of venture right. capitalists. But as you are uh, really uh, good at doing, you found the backstory here. So tell us about the companies and the backstory. Yeah. So, you know, GitHub was sort of the early movers, a code repository where you could, you know, go and show what projects you've been working on, work on open source. It became sort of a mix of like a LinkedIn for coders and sort of a, a resource um, for finding code. And then uh, GitLab comes out of Y Combinator, you know, years after the founding of GitHub and is basically trying to build tools for enterprise. It's less, it's not the social network. It's more like, okay, if you're a big company, where can you, you know, your coders sort of keep all their code. And, you know, so it comes out of YC and I just sort of, I write these story of the cap table pieces, which are really, you know, you look at the S1 and you say, who's the biggest holder? So I saw, okay, it's Coastal Ventures is one of them. August Capital is one of them. Uh, Iconic is one of them. And Google Ventures, GV now. Is one of them, and then and those I sort tend of, to be people who own f over five percent get listed. Five, over five percent get disclosed. Right, um, that's why I I always dodge the bullet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I know. have multiple entities, so even if I do own more than five, they're they're broken up. Some of these I try and go back, and you know, if there's a good angel investor story, I'll tell it. This one I didn't as much, um, but uh, this guy Kassar Yunus at YC, I think, you know, was sort of a big proponent of theirs there, and he introduced. So Ben Ling was at uh, Coastal Ventures, and he was sort of just you know going through the YC portfolio. He meets with Sid, the founder of GitLab, 
Um, this is back in March 2015. And then basically, you know, Ben believes in it, hands it off to Sven Stroband, the CTO at the time at Kosla. And it sort of just documents, you know, so- how investing works, which is just, it's extremely interpersonal. It's like who you know, who can refer you, even on something yep. super technical as GitLab. Obviously, Sven is sort of more the coder guy, so he can assess the company and come to a view of whether this is actually like a good idea. But to get the deal and to start thinking about it, it's like, who do you know at Y Combinator? How does it work? And so so I love to chart that out, you know, how mm. even yeah. within the firms, it's so, it's so interpersonal and that there's so many random things that happen that make, you know, I, I did one of these on DoorDash and literally um, Sar, who was at, who was at CRV, he was going to invest in DoorDash. He was looking at another company and he happened to talk to the general manager at Orange Hummus in San Francisco, mm-hmm. who said, actually, I don't like that other company you're looking at, but I like DoorDash. And that's ah. how he found it, you know? And it, so I love sort of just the randomness you know, the, of it is, you know, I love, it's, it's very the world's real. So human, you know, you get all these yes. numbers, you're starting from an S1, you see ownership and they're huge. You know, we're talking about billions of dollars, but at the end of the day, as you know, as well as anybody, I mean, these are such like personal, things right so yc gets seven percent of the company for 150k uh they get diluted down obviously so they probably didn't show up on the s1 i assume right i you know i was talking to someone the other day i think the standard yc is like owning like three and a half percent probably so that yeah it's below the five and if you do that math maybe they own like 450 million i mean that's extremely ballpark on yc but Obviously, no, it would it's a be great if return. you did if you did three or four rounds at twenty percent each. You're looking at fifty, sixty percent dilution. If you started at seven percent of common, you get down to three and a half. And but they do have a continuation fund. That continuation fund might have put money in, but that would also be under a different entity. So yeah, therefore, it wouldn't go it above probably. five. Like, you wouldn't yeah. you, you wouldn't see it either because it might own one percent, two percent. Yeah. So then August invests at that twenty-seven million dollar post money valuation. Right. August is the best part of the story. I mean, yeah. Tell us that. Part. That's where the drama is here. I mean, basically, here August Capital had this guy, AB Katz, who's an associate. So, sort of, you know, the total growth. Oh, and by the way, Ben the world. Ling, he's at Bling Capital now. Ben uh, Ling Capital. Yep. He did the seed round with Kosla, which means they put in a million or two and own 10%. Right, or they 20, do the own seed 10%. and the A. Um, hmm. Yeah. And so then August Capital. They hmm. So this guy... AB Cats after the seed round, you an know, associate, an associate is just like on Hacker News, sort of a nerdy guy, super deep in sort of the San Francisco tech scene. Starts tracking GitLab and is bringing up to his partner. So Trip Jones, who's a partner, they meet with GitLab CEO um, Sid, and they bring him into the partnership. And the partnership, you know, some of them sort of like you know old school VCs are really skeptical. You know, I have this great quote. The company seems like, quote, the antithesis of everything a smart VC held to be true. You know, because GitLab was open source. It was fully remote when nobody believed in that. And then, yeah, it was coming behind GitHub and it was competing with Atlassian. So it just seemed like such a crazy company. So then August Capital doesn't invest in the A. Kosla invests in the A. And then, you know, uh, then this guy, Vili Ilchev, comes in in May 2016, joins August. He had worked at Box, LifeLock, Salesforce, and most importantly, while at Salesforce, he looked at GitHub around the acquisition of Heroku. And so then Illy really gets becomes a big believer in mm. GitLab and really like vibes 
with GitLab CEO and then really pitches the founders. And he's I a mean, partner. He, he's a partner. Got it. And then August Capital, you know, they're still like, oh, I don't know. We're worried about it. And David Hornick, who's sort of like the big time guy who'd invested in Splunk and made a bunch of money, has some reservations. I mean, Hornick was very defensive with I me. I saw the quotes. <laughs> I mean, he gave you a lot of he Yeah, a lot he of sent me like a long email because, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to say you were like not into this deal. And he's like, you know, everyone had some reservations about the deal. It was anything but a sure thing at the time. I was no more vocal about my reservations than anyone else. Anyway, and Billy's very, uh, you know, probably nice directionally to correct, but <laughs> you, your guy told you he was dead set against it. He was fighting no, against no, it. No, I, I just said he had some reservations. It's just there's Got a it. certain irony. I'm not saying like, I mean, obviously the deal happened. The partnership sure. has to agree. Hornick was super key in selling it, so I'm not trying to insult him. It it's funny in light of how the story ends. It's not so, which I'll get to in a second. Yes, it's not so much that he was like dead set against it. It's just like this wasn't. He wasn't like the champion of this. Like Billy was the champion of this. This guy, AB, was the champion of this. And then, you know, Trip, who was another partner, had sort of been involved in bringing it in and was really listening to AB about it. Um, so anyway, Billy gets it done. They invest $14 million, uh, and they end up with an 11.1 stake in GitLab at the IPO. Oh. The stake's worth about $1.6 billion. So you invest wow. like $15.5 million altogether and you get 1.6. Yeah, exactly. It's more than 100x yum, yum. return. On a big so, number. It's not 100x on a 25 or 50k check. It's 100x <laughs> on a 14 right, million, yeah, 15 yeah, million. It's, yeah. it's huge. I mean, and, and the fund itself that they're investing out of was only 450 million. So they've right. more than 3x the fund. $1.2 billion in uh, profit, which means 20% of that carry uh, would be $250 million. Yeah. And there are other fun, you know, companies. And they might have a ratchet there where if they, you know, double, they get to 25% or 30%. So this could be 300 million in carry. I would put it at 250 in carry. They're they're always more, you know, VCs hate to talk about it. They're always more. Yeah, no, I I love it. When you are trying to grow a startup fast, hiring engineers will slow you down like nothing else. Don't I know it? So many companies I invest in are telling me they can't get their next version out because they don't have a great engineer. Well, Lemon.io will find you a perfect candidate in just 48 hours. It's a marketplace of engineers from Europe, and they test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. Lemon.io is the perfect solution if you are a technical co-founder and you need to delegate some of your important tasks, or you have a project that needs specific technology and you don't have that skill on your team yet, or you are just growing so fast that you need to add more developers and get more done faster. They'll match you with a candidate within 48 hours, and if it doesn't work out, they'll replace the developer right away. So here is your CTA, the old call to action. If you could use a full-time or even part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to lemon.io slash twist. Once again, lemon, L-E-M-O-N dot I-O slash twist, and you'll receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of work with that amazing developer. Well done, Lemon. Okay, check it out, everybody. Lemon.io slash twist. So then August Capital, you know, they're trying to raise their next fund. And there's some resistance from LPs. You know, it's just there hadn't been a lot of exits. You know, people were constantly people have been worried about a bubble forever, you know. And it, you know, it was hard. And August didn't have tremendous returns. They didn't have a big breakout like this previously. It's hard hard to know GitLab's going to be huge, you know? Right. But they Um, didn't have a GitLab in the previous fund or the past two funds, I would guess, 
which is why they were having a hard time. If they did return four or five times the fund cash on cash, they would have an easy time raising a fund. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I I know they exit fastly. Mm, um, that was a good one. Yeah. And they exit. I have it in the story. I'm looking for yeah. it. It's like Fastly and Bill.com. I'm not mm. sure which funds those were, but I guess they hadn't exited yet. But then once right. they exit, LPs are more convinced. So basically, you know, Hornick and uh, another partner sort of say, we're not going to take more. We're not going to invest more. We're basically going to pause. We're not going to take in all this money. And it takes all the people around GitLab, which is like the great investment of Fund 7 by surprise. And so Billy leaves like, and everybody's sort of in this weird position because if you're a VC, your funds vest generally. So it's not like you you need to stick around because it's supposed to be a long-term business. So basically the story is just like the guys who made this firm a fortune were sort of screwed over Mm -hmm. by the sudden shutdown of august capital now august capital exists so they shut down august capital because they can't raise a new fund they say we're going to stop investing seven right they didn't invest they weren't going to raise a new fund and they were just going to sort of manage out seven and then suddenly some of the guys who are involved in august start lobby capital which is Mm. you know a very related firm that has some control over august capital so you can sort of capital had started a conference over 10 years ago called right. the lobby. I never, yeah. I was invited. I never went because I was running my own conference at the time. And, um, <laughs> right. The key thing is to run a conference, not to go to conference. Well, yeah, I exactly. And so, but <laughs> people love the conference because it's just a boondoggle. It was invite right. only two or 300 right. VCs and founders. Right. right. Um, and so they shut down August, but then they create lobby capital right. with the same two founding GPs. <laughs> right. So it's it's sort of it feels like a little bit of a game to to shed maybe some of the um partners and still have have control. But I, I don't want to say anything beyond you know what I said in the Well story. the cynical view of it would be if you have a seven year carry. So let's say the associate, I can do the math for you here. An associate would get one percent of the firm's carry. Okay? Twenty points of carry, they might get twenty basis points. Uh, which would be 1%, right? Uh, 10% would be two of the 20 points. So 1% of the $250 million carry uh, in that one deal would be $2.5 million. So she's getting paid 150 grand or something, 100 grand, 200 grand, who knows? Um, so it's a pretty nice payday to get, you know, 20 times your, in your first job, associates like the first job. The other partner is a junior partner or maybe not one of the two founding partners. The two founding partners are probably getting 6% each, 6 points each, which would be five times that 30% of the carry. That partner maybe has, let's say, um, instead of 1% of the carry, maybe they have 5% of the carry. 5% is, you know, 15 million, 12 million, something like that. Now, if they're on a seven-year vest or three years into it, where does that other half of their the money go? Where does the 1.25 go? Where does the, <laughs> right, the other half left, of the 15, presumably. the seven and a half right. go? goes back to the original founders because they don't have to pay it out. Just like if an employee leaves Uber or Google early, those shares don't get issued. They go back to the founders or they just all the shareholders uh, get that benefit of those shares not being issued. Right. So that would be the most cynical view of this. Um, Now, if they did shut down the firm, they might say to the other other partners will accelerate you're vesting by right. a year or so, two so there are a couple as of facts a thank you. And then they hor- would make them sign right. a non-disclosure, which means you would not get it because if they did, yeah. everybody they'd have something was called a clawback. The story. It was, uh, that, that's because there's a clawback. I they know. probably yeah, gave I'm them sure, two-thirds of it. Sure. And if yeah. they talk Everything's about it, right. they get their money. They, they, the founders get to take the money back. So 
So it seems like Vili, the guy who really landed the GitLab deal, um, probably got at least some of his carry, carry. accelerated. And then AB, the associate, I mean, he was just an associate, and it seemed like they gave him some carry for playing the, the role. So I'm not saying they've been totally ungenerous. I mean, it seems sure. like one of the other partners sort of stuck around after it really made much sense. I, I would infer that that was um, to keep vesting, but mm. but it was a very painful situation for everyone involved. And there is like, even in stories where you don't have a firm shutting down, you know, there's a lot of credit taking in the VC business because yes. everybody has a fair position, right? The top guys are like, well, I worked my way up. And part yeah. of the value is you have some associate working for you who does deal flow. They find stuff Absolutely. and you have to decide whether to do it. And then you get the credit and then they get to get promoted and then they get credit. 100%. That's sort of the old school flow of it. But then, I mean, I think we're in a world where it's much more individualistic. People don't stay at their firms forever. And so now I think there is much more like who actually found this deal? Like, and then what parts of sourcing and, you know, getting the deal done were most important. And these stories dig up, you know, get into the specifics of that in ways that firms would just like to say, you know, the venture firm did it instead of, but uh, I, I thought this was a funny quote from David Hornick. He's like, sometimes the deal business is more mundane than modern folklore would suggest. Mm. And in the end, great successes like GitLab have many fathers while great failures die as orphans, um, which is both true, but then also obviously uh, that's true because of how people tell these stories where they all want um, to make themselves the the key player in getting a deal done. Yeah, you know, and great reporting, by the way. And Thank I just you. love the format you're doing at newcomer.co to break down the cap table like this. Very informative. You know, we get to see this, you know, uh, and now cap tables are getting tightened up because of Carta. Uh, you know, when I go look at a cap table in the old days, like I have in my email, the Uber and Robinhood cap tables, like they would just send them to you in an Excel sheet. Um, and that's how I met a lot of my contemporaries. I would, this was a hack I did, and I actually wrote about it in my book, was just take out the cap table, look at the other names, Google them, find those people, and then say, hey, we're, are, are you an investor in Robinhood? And if they say yes, then go have coffee with them and ask them <laughs> to share deal flow. So right. literally, one of my big playbooks of how right. I became successful was, I just looked on the cap table, I was like, who's this guy, Chris Sacco? Who is this person, Cyan Bannister? I'll invite them right. to my next event. So I built my network that way. Now, when you go in Carta, it obscurifies... It's opaque who's on the cap table. What you'll see is the seed round has this many shares. It's this percentage. You have this many shares. Huh. Pro rata is this, but it blurs all that. So whether you're hmm. using cap I table, didn't IO, cap base, take, that way. Yeah, you can, you can restrict by levels. So That's if sad. You, There's so much information in cap table. I mean, it is. Yeah, I love yeah. just going through pitch book and... That's my version of it when you're not getting the real thing and just seeing. Yeah, pitch book has, uh, you know, a little bit more granularity. And then people would leak, you know, cap tables yeah. now and again. There's very famous stories about cap tables. I mean, that's how people, the Wall Street Journal did the story about my Uber position was somebody leaked the early cap table. And it was right. like, okay, well, there it is. And uh, some of these stories, I, I think the DoorDash one, I, you know, I'll get, you know, the, the, the people below 5%. It just depends how interest, what I'm focused on. Yeah. In the story. I mean, they're not that tightly held, obviously. Um, no. Um, and, you know, and there's all kinds of wacky stuff that happens on cap tables and people get bought out. And there's all kinds right. of stories like of early Uber investors who sold in the Series B. Like, I, it was very famous that Techstars, I think, you know, had a fund and I think they got offered, you know, at maybe, four, I know it was a pass the Series B. It was maybe like $4 billion. 
and there was a secondary and I talked to Travis and there was this like secondary going on. I was like, what's this? Who's emailing me? And he's just like, yeah, don't sell. <laughs> and I was like, okay, right. thanks, pal. And, well, and I then, mean, that's Sokka, you know, with Twitter and I think Stripe has made a bunch of money just buying from other people who are foolish enough to sell. I mean, obviously some of it is, you know, if you're an exec and you want to be rich now and not rich in five years or whatever. If it's your only holdings, if it's right. 95% right. of your net worth, it's a very smart idea to get it down to 50% or something, right? You want to ride your winners, but you don't right. want to, as we've seen with WeWork, you would have been wiped out and got zero. So you're sitting there with a $47 billion WeWork with an $18 million preference, right? There's eight, right. there's probably more, $25 million in the company, $25 billion rather. Now the company's worth $9 billion. You know what that means to the common? Zero dollars. Like you get nothing. You're You're wiped out. Um, and maybe some early investors got just severely wiped out as well. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I'm, I'm interested to know what happened in the, uh, if, if a direct listing versus an IPO would have had a different impact on the preference stack or anything, if there was, uh, well in an IPO, all shares convert to common, but what can happen is if it, if in those later rounds, because they're so spectacularly large, there's a clause that says. If this is, you know, we're buying into 30 billion for Airbnb, let's say I'm just making this up. If it goes down to 15 billion, you got to give us 50%. Yeah, yeah, more I shares. get preference stack. I'm saying yeah. that a direct that a, um, a SPAC is technically a merger. And so right. I, I, I don't know, it's just reportable. I just love, you know, whether they're, you know, whether they knew to protect against a SPAC versus a I think IPO probably, you know, with SoftBank owning 65%. Right. That was a recapitalization <laughs> right. moment they where they recapped they the company yeah, and probably exactly. wiped they out fixed the common. They fixed it then. Yeah. They fixed it then to right. that. And, and a lot of times when they do those like really ugly cap recaps, I've been involved in them, it gets really ugly. Um, and the best thing is when they just say it's pay to play. So, okay, the company's going from $47 billion down to a $6 billion valuation. We're raising $3 billion. All the common is now wiped out. All the all the other preferred is wiped out. Everybody's wiped out unless you participate in this. So you have to put more money up. So and that's the way you legally protect yourself. Does that make sense? Like right. because you had the opportunity to buy. It's right. not like you were excluded from buying the shares at this new price. You know this right. discounted price. Uh, or they do warrants. They could say, hey, you know, for every I'd share you buy. I'd love to know whether how benchmark if they're going to make some money on this because they were the seed. I, my Series understanding and the rumor I heard just a rumor. Yeah. is that they may have took opportunity took an opportunity to sell in secondary yeah uh in those increasing rounds because remember <laughs> I, they were right, seed sure or they series a upside. were they the right. series a or the seed? series a yeah series a so i think when masiosasan shows up he's buying as much as possible right. and if they owned you know let's say they owned 15 percent at that point completely conceivable that they sold 10 percent to masa for 500 right. million dollars or something at a five right. million dollar valuation right. locked in their returns that's been my assumption that they've made money off this thing i, I mean that, think so right the, i mean with the WeWork story you know the the, re the reporters love to make it sort of an indictment on everybody who touched it but there is a degree to which investing in this <laughs> charismatic messiah founder at a series a can make sense even if they're sort of out of control. Um, well, you know, the thing is you don't know they're going to be out of control. And actually, right. it looks like SoftBank's first investment in 2017, Benchmark cashed out $129 million yeah. for an 8x return on the initial investment. And hmm. I assume they had some idiot insurance. They still had some shares. Right. But to your point about the, the craziness going on right now, uh, the amount of fraud, the amount of 
you know, well, bending we were lawyers going to come after you. They're they're insistent. There was no fraud allegation. You can say whatever yes. you want. <laughs> no, I didn't, no, no, no. I, I wasn't talking yeah, about. I know we you're not saying, I'm saying about the amount work, of fraud but, but I'm seeing at the industry writ large. They're running around. Uh, Are they very? I think so. Yeah, that is. Oh my, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I would just say unethical behavior on the part of yeah. what I would consider unethical. I wouldn't say the word right. fraud. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm saying is, there's a lot of people right now. Uh, I think who are I think the industry is probably got a five to 10 X the amount of bad behavior malfeasance borderline fraud shaping of stuff I think we're going to see you know so many lawsuits and allegations in the coming months because I, I don't know if you saw there was the person who had a SaaS company what was the name of it that just got um, sanctioned by the SEC because he faked a head spin. They oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. yeah. It was head spin. I mean, that one was egregious. That one, Super. I never really. I mean, just followed straight up lying. Thing. Right, right. I mean, they had like that forty was a million Google in revenue Ventures or something. Company, GV. Um, yeah. So it was legit investors. Well, here's the thing that's really scary that you should really be, um, you know, as a you know somebody who's deep in this, uh, my 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 little like, hey, look over here, kind of yeah. moment. If you're, um, if people are dipping down and they're relying on the Series A and the Series Bs. Uh, or the Series A and Series, uh, the seed and the Series A investors diligence, and they're just coming and saying, I can do a deal in 48 hours with right. you at this crazy price. Higher global, yeah. Well, I'm not talking about anybody in specific, <laughs> but let's just say, they say yeah. as part of their aggressive approach, we don't need to do diligence. We can just do a quick investment. We know you got great investors. What right. I can tell you is, you know, I do a very serious diligence process. People think I'm nuts because um, we'll ask to see bank statements. We'll ask to see the iTunes sales reports. We'll ask to yeah. see, we'll ask to talk to their accountant. We'll ask to talk to the top three employees. We'll ask to right. talk to the top three customers. I mean, we do diligence like we're a series A firm, even though we're doing seed. Um, and since we started doing that, we found a lot of, we uncovered a lot of problems right. that then led us. I'd say it used to be one out of 10 times. Now it's maybe one out of five times. Wow. We pass on a deal. Now, I'm pretty sensitive. I'll see something like somebody owns 30% of the cap table because they went to some Fakaka crazy um, accelerator and they gave 30% to a dev shop. And I'm like, I'm not investing in this because I know it's going to screw up the future rounds. Right. I'll, I'll buy them out or you can buy them out or right. get them down to 10% so we can clean the cap table up. But that's your choice as the founder. I don't want to force you to do that. I'm just telling you it's going to be hard. So what the problem is is i look at my contemporaries and some of them don't s read their legal documents they don't sign they don't take the time to spend a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars on a legal review of the documents they don't even know what they signed they don't do diligence they say you do diligence jay cal i'm like i always do diligence they're like oh okay great i'm like okay great what and it's like okay great i don't need to and i'm like <laughs> right you we know, can free write off of you well and i think what's happening is there's a lot of suspending of disbelief in order right. to win deals. So what are people doing to win a deal in a competitive environment? Not doing diligence, not taking a board seat. Okay. Right. How does that play into a sociopathic person like, you know, Elizabeth Holmes or somebody who's just a freak like Adam Newman? Right. No governance. How did he do with that? Not well. Okay. Right. No diligence. How did that go for Theranos? Not well. Now add to it. In order to win the deal, I will give the founders a bucket load of new equity. I'll re-up the founders. And now the founder is looking at three term sheets. One is doing no diligence, no board seat, and they're going right. to give them an extra 10, 20% of shares of the company. And the other two are from Bill Gurley and Sequoia and whoever. Right. And they're saying, let's do diligence. We're going to take a board seat, of course. And then, uh, yeah, no, if you want to give yourself more shares, let's, we'll have a compensation committee. We'll do a proper review. 
and the founder picks that one. That to me is fraud, you know, or well, it's, it's borderline fraud. fraud. It, it's just it could be if you were not be, acting in the well, interest of the it, shareholders. It's funny, it's funny that you're taking the more conservative line than I am on this. I mean, there's a degree to which, yeah, it's just, the this sort of Andreessen philosophy that like some of the disasters will get washed out in the good, and that it's better to deploy a bunch of cash and get in it. Mm. has been validated in certain ways, you know? Um, yeah. Until the, uh, until, until the tide goes out. But it, even, even SoftBank, right? I mean, which is the, you know, we saw with, we were, I mean, Coupang, DD. Now some of those, they might get hit in some of the China retrenchment No, no, they'll problems, still, they'll still return but, billions, but tens still, of billions of returns. They're still getting tons of exits. So there is a degree to which if you're playing for big and you're like, well, I want to be the king of the bubble, you know, the bubble yeah. blows up. I'll be the most destroyed, but I'll be infamous. And if the bubble goes, I'll be the biggest. That that's sort of a worldview that says, yeah, exactly. F diligence. I'm kind of like, in. The I, I obviously respect the benchmarks do it right. that you're doing it the right way. That that is, I'm a reporter, though. I'm sort of like, that's yeah, obviously, I'm inclined mm -hmm. to manage downside the train wreck <laughs> I, I want the tr no 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 i'm saying i like i like people who care about the truth you know what i yeah. mean and don't say like well enough money will you know solve the truth or whatever but um but clearly the people who've been uh bananas have been rewarded in certain ways so i can see why people just keep playing that strategy well i mean also just look at crypto you know like people are suspending right. disbelief they're like this, right. you know here's my next nft project Right. Yeah, I'll put fifty million into that. It's going to buy me tokens, and right. uh, it's going to go into some offshore, you know, Panamanian Zerg nonprofit, and we don't know who's on the board of it. Like, there, there's a lot of suspending of disbelief. In well, this is sort of my well. position on Coinbase, right? They've mm -hmm. they've become so successful despite you know. I still I, I wrote this story about Gary Tan, right? Gary Tan uh, was a Y Combinator. He starts initialized. Awesome founder, he yeah. he's great. He um he invested in coinbase super early because he thought bitcoin would not be some speculative tool but like but a medium of exchange like something right. that you know people could pay with that that has not been borne out you know it no. is still a speculative tool payments. but yeah. it doesn't matter he got rich on coinbase anyway you know yeah. like the reality is that bitcoin has gone up so much that even if you know it comes crashing down a lot of the people who bet on it early have yeah. made their money and so What's it? What's reality at that point when it's like, well, it, the speculation went on long enough that they've been able to exit, you know, a hundred billion or or whatever valuation Coinbase's company. Um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like you throw up your hands about reality at some point because it, it's know, worked. For me, it's like if you're going to do this stuff, it's worth doing right and to do it in a button-up fashion. And so that that's just been my message to founders. Yeah. Like, you know, you take these shortcuts, um, you know, you, you, you might be building, you know, this giant building on a shaky foundation, right. and it could collapse. And you know who gets hurt the most? Not the venture firm or the angel investor with 100 investments or 200 investments and seven funds. It's the founder and the team right. members who are, you know, living in the building who just got crushed when it crumbled. You're the one who's going to take the biggest hit. Right. I know you're so, not you're not gonna talk about your friend, but there is a degree to which if Travis had listened to Bill Gurley more and moderated slightly. I mean, maybe Gurley was wrong on going to China or whatever. It still probably would have meant that he was still in his job, you know, which might have been worth yeah. it. It was a, uh, that's certainly going to be an interesting, um, you know, in 10 years from now, we'll have an interesting debrief on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, 
Clash of the Titans. Only yeah, the, the, I, I the show, the with both, show right? is still going to come out. You know, it's like amazing that this is the story. Even though Uber the business is not like a once in generation uh, company at this point, Uber the story is like a once. It's a huge, it's cultural phenomenon. Uh, I, you know, I I have a feeling like Uber will be worth five times as much ten years. Really. From now and, yeah, I think oh, you know um, the people are underestimating. Huh. You know what being they've the sold everything off. At something means like, what's that? I feel like they've sold everything off. Um, you know they still own those positions in Aurora and the VTOL companies, and they get to monetize them without having to run them. And then they get to focus like a laser just on transportation, logistics, and shipping. You know things. I think it's going to be a very prescient play uh, for them. And I think self driving, you know, which everybody thought would be the death of Uber. And Lyft, that's why the New York Times story didn't make sense. They were like, oh, it's that's going to be the thing that saves them. It was like, that was the thing that was going to kill them, right? And I think self-driving without the person in the vehicle is, uh, you know, 10 years off in San Francisco, New York, LA, Tokyo, you know, like at least 10 years. Right. I, do think, I do think Tesla Autopilot works. I've used it all the time. I don't have the most recent beta, but um, you, you, do need, you do need to intervene. So I, I think regulators are not going to allow the driver and the steering wheel to go for at least 10 years. Yeah, I, I have not been. <laughs> I've been skeptical about self-driving for a long time, but uh, yeah, you know, it was a fun story for a while. Yeah. All right. Listen, everybody go subscribe right now. Let's get another 100 subscribers for Eric so he can hire yeah. somebody so he can take yeah. three weeks Newcomer. of vacation next year. Uh, my, I have a podcast called Dead Cat, too. You can listen to that. Oh, yeah. Reporters. I didn't know you have that. Who, wait, you're doing that with somebody? I'm doing it with Tom Doton at Business Insider and Katie Benner at the New York Times. Uh, oh, yeah. We had Parker Conrad great. on for our first episode. We just, oh, from we Ripple just in, and Zen yeah, uh, Zenefis, Rippling. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Rippling and Zenefits, yeah. We just had Max Chafkin on to talk about the contrarian. His I new, had him on last week. Oh, yeah, 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 you're ahead did of I, us, so. Uh, did, you, you, did you happen to hear my interview with him? No, I haven't yet, sorry. I basically got into it a little bit because there were two things in the book I noticed. Did you notice that he was talking about, like, white supremacy adjacent people, like, seven or eight times in the okay. book? Okay, yeah. And then maybe six or seven, five, six, seven times in the book, he was like, Peter really likes young, attractive, outspoken men. And I was yeah, like, he what did you say that a lot. But a I lot. Do, but I, I do think there's a fact pattern there that a lot of the people like, he likes at? to associate himself with are. It's like, what are you getting at here? <laughs> he was like, it's just he has a type and it's attractive young men. And I was like, okay, what about, I, said, I just asked him straight up, Max, do you think he's a white nationalist? Because you, you keep mentioning the white nationalist stuff. And he's like, no, I think he just likes those provocative people. And he, you know, has the Milo Yiannopoulos. Well, I mean, I'm not saying this makes somebody him. a white nationalist. I mean, he's very anti-immigrant, clearly. I mean, that's he's like a hard line on immigration. And he definitely is big on the, you know, we should be able to say whatever we want, which the is often coded yes. as I should be able to, like, you know. Say bad words. <laughs> well, or not or just, have yeah. Have dark like, thoughts. <laughs> right, have dark thoughts about race and, like, affirm, you right. know, just, like, uh, that's often the subject people... When people say, oh, I am not allowed to say what I think, it's like, well, what's what's the thing that you really want to speak about? Um, I don't know. I, you know, this is a huge... I it was believe, a good guess. I, I, I actually enjoyed the book. You know, knowing, the saying, like, knowing yeah. all the principles in the book, or most of them, right? Um, and having watched, you know, the last 20 years, you know, by their sides, it filled in a lot for me. I, I actually, like, I thought it was a well-written book. I thought he did a good job at it. I thought he was, like, overestimating how scared and you know, Peter Thiel's footprint in Silicon Valley, like Peter, I don't want to say Peter Thiel's not relevant in Silicon Valley. Um, but he's not in Silicon Valley. He's not really right. since Facebook and, and, you know, Palantir, it's not like he's 
he's not even running Founders Fund. Like there's people, Brian runs Founders Fund. It's, it's nothing to do with Peter, really, it feels like. Um, so Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always hard. Eh? It is a key, a key question is like, how big is Peter Thiel? Because then, you know, it's like, how worried should we be? How How much should we hold it against Founders Fund? Yeah, I don't have, it's, it's hard. I mean, still on the board of Facebook. I mean, to me, that That's is an extremely thing. powerful place to be. I mean, Palantir is a huge government contractor. Andrew yeah. is probably going to go public in the next 18 months. Like, I think they're, you know, he's doing a lot. And obviously, this is someone who took down Gawker sort of in a long yeah. play, sort of quiet game. And then I he's, think for media he's people, donated. That's the thing. Right. Media people overestimate huge. because, and I told them, I was like, Max, he's, he's like, this is a big existential threat. I was like, how many other publications has he shut it's down? It's a big impact on freedom of speech. I mean, just as somebody who's writing independently, like I think about it a lot. You know, yeah, but and, you also don't print revenge porn and sex. Sure, tape, so but it's you're still not ever like, going to get sued. The fact that you can sort of lose a sort of, I mean, the one they lost, I, I you know, there's it's was a, a sex tape, argument. a stolen sex tape. Yes, I mean, if they they right. had the if the stolen right. sex tape for Hulk Hogan was in your inbox, you would not print it. Right, nine hundred ninety nine out of a thousand having, publications wouldn't. If the law isn't there to protect you, it's good to avoid having enemies and doing yes. things that might antagonize people needlessly becomes risky, which impedes journalism. So, you know, that's that's the flip side of it, because you don't want unnecessary enemies or, yep. you know, obviously I'm much more conservative than Gawker was. But if that lawsuit didn't exist. I would be a little freer than I am today. That's interesting. Wow. I, I didn't think it was uh, actually impacting people's behavior. All right, listen. Thanks for coming on the pod. Bye-bye. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. Matt Newberg uh, runs something called Hungry TV. It is H-N-G-R-Y.TV. Get it, Hungry Without the Vowels, uh, a cool naming convention. He's been doing that for a couple of years now. And uh, it's just a platform exploring how technology shapes food, you know, the stuff we eat. And he's got a trans newsletter, um, and he covers food tech. And that obviously is something that is uh, becoming a giant business from Whole Foods and Amazon to Postmates, Uber Eats, DoorDash, and everything in between. So we're going to talk uh, with Matt about the state of the industry. Welcome to the program, Matt Newberg. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Awesome to be here. Oh, you probably heard my introduction of you. Did I get it approximately right? You uh, run Amazing. a newsletter company and a media company. If people want to sign up for your newsletter, they go to hungry.tv without the vowels. And uh, you are on the Twitter at the new B, the noob, the noob, <laughs> just put it together, the noob. Um, so uh, why don't we kick off a little bit with how uh, the uh, COVID pandemic impacted food delivery, uh, grocery delivery and everything in between, because you also have beverages in there and convenience sources, a big sort of sweeping uh, revolution that happened where people uh, who had not previously used these services were stuck at home in quarantine and obviously downloaded the app. So I'm curious as to not only what happened during the pandemic, which I think we can all guess, but what's happening right now in what we hope is the waning days of the pandemic. And depending on which state and city you go to here in the United States, there's either an incredible um, pandemic and people are wearing masks and, and socially distancing, or it's a free for all depending on the state. So uh, tell us what, what's what's happening now in this hopefully waning uh, days of the pandemic to the food delivery industry. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great place to start. So like looking at the overall food industry across restaurants and groceries, there's constantly been kind of this food away from home, food at home kind of paradigm. So in aggregate, it's about one point seven trillion dollars in spending. And what happened during the pandemic was as restaurants closed their doors, uh, we saw about a twenty percent decrease um, away from from restaurants and a real big boost to grocers um, as people stocked up on groceries. But simultaneously within that, we had a massive growth in both online e-commerce for, for restaurant delivery, for takeout and delivery. And we also had a huge, huge boom to online grocery, which I think is probably the biggest amount of growth. So in restaurant food delivery, I believe we went from about, um, don't quote me exactly on this, but like something like... It's like seven percent um, food of total food sales going towards delivery to to somewhere now about ten percent. Mm, um, most of, it's mostly takeout, and then we when when it comes to online grocery, went from like two to three percent to ten percent. Wow! So that's the that's the major jump. That's where Instacart really came in and, and saved the day for a lot of grocers. And now here we are. People are waking up and saying, "We need to do this ourselves. We need grocers need to become technology companies," which is a very big challenge. And and that's why now you're seeing a lot of the the ten to fifteen minute vertically integrated players eyeing this this TAM of delivery of of grocery, uh, which is about one point one billion dollars, um, two hundred fifty billion dollars of which is going towards your traditional fuel convenience stores, and then the rest, the other eight hundred fifty billion, is you know your grocery um, your grocery outlets. So um, we went from from three percent to ten percent, and in the next five years. We're expected to go from ten percent to twenty percent. Wow! Um, so that's a steady, you know, two percent growth every year for the next five years. And um, yeah. And so, based on what you're saying there, it feels like uh, the grocery stores and the convenience stores are saying, you know what, partnering with, you know, Instacart, DoorDash, um, Postmates, Uber Eats uh, might be fine but you're saying you're saying some of them are just going to decide to do it for themselves and go it alone and maybe stop in the grocery space are you saying that instacart is going to see their delivery service go down because vons or whoever safeway decides you know what this is our core business if one out of five customers is going to take our services by delivery why are we even having instacart in the building why are we enabling their business why don't we just be fully integrated, which I believe is what Whole Foods chose to do, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they sold to Amazon, and Amazon is building a very compelling omni-channel offering now across in-store with Whole Foods as the high-end kind of banner and Amazon Fresh as kind of the middle market kind of Kroger uh, banner. Um, and then the online component, which is Amazon Fresh, right? And and then the other grocers, I don't think, can, can even compete because they need a player like an Amazon to come in. And completely revamp everything from their purchasing all the way down to the consumer experience and the logistics. So they've kind of cobbled together these solutions. And I believe that over the long term, um, you know, the Albertsons and Kroger's of the world will just buy their technology from the likes of Ocado, Instacart, etc. And use them as picks and shovels if if those companies can offer those picks and shovels. Um, but the the real interesting thing is the, the the rise of the vertically integrated grocer that's going to try to attack these guys at the um, at their at their knees. So you know by offering faster delivery, 
obviously not the same 40,000 items of, of products that you would find in a traditional grocery store, but a much more curated set of grocery items um, and pantry items for this category of instant needs, which we can get into. But um, So yeah. the strategy for these vertically integrated ones, are those like the jokers and the getters and the corner stores, uh, which was obviously bought by Uber? This is this new category of lower number SKUs, but quicker delivery time, correct? Vertically integrated, yeah. And, and that's kind of the key here. It's that, you know, a lot of the labor laws in this country and abroad uh, do not support, you know, sustainable delivery at high penetration volumes. And you see this with DoorDash is now betting heavier, um, more and more on DashMart, which is their vertically integrated solution. So they're actually making margin off the product. And I think you're going to see a lot more players enter this space because um, there's been proven models abroad with the likes of Gatier, as you mentioned, um, or however you pronounce it, Getter, Gatier, and Delivery <laughs> Hero that have, you know, really built billion-dollar businesses through dark kitchens and dark um, supermarkets, DMarts, uh, dark dark stores um, mm. that have basically transformed, you know, vacant re retail on Main Street or off of Main Street and can transformed it into kind of a last mile infrastructure that house um, commonly or, you know, ha uh, commonly ordered items from local bodegas or, or random, you know, corner stores. So what we're seeing is there was this model where Postmates or Instacart uh, I think we're the ones who pioneered this would send a Postmates. I don't know what they used to call them, but a Postmater. I don't know. Uh, they would call them your Postmates. It was like a yeah. person, a uh, personal shopper, basically. Uh, or Instacart would send a personal shopper for you, a shopper, to a store that already existed in the world, buy your stuff, deliver it, charge you a markup. But if you're, you know, Joker or I guess this new uh, corner shop, um, the concept is that Uber's corner shop would inventory the items themselves have the drivers there it's one app it's not two different parties involved in the delivery it's just one party and it's a lot more seamless if you have a return if you have an issue and then it knocks 10 minutes off the average delivery time or something yeah i mean you go from a you know a traditional i guess instacart was offering one to two hour delivery now they're offering 30 minute delivery to, to kind of compete against these guys you know Gatier kind of pioneered the 10 minute model, you know, we're splitting hairs at some point. It's like, you know, really what this is about is a land grab for, you know, for customers and in, in certain markets. And the way to do that is to go plaster a bunch of billboards and say, you're going to offer free delivery in the fastest amount of time. Gorillas is doing it in 10 minutes. Joker's doing it 15 minutes. There's one that's even called 1520, which in the name implies 15 to 20 minutes. Um, does it really matter? We can talk about that. I don't think it really does between 15 oh. and 30, but um it is a land so, job right now let's let's talk about that when i order my groceries at the house you know we have three or four different people who might be contributing to the order we have a little ipad in the kitchen that we all use hey the order is going in today the groceries will be here later tonight or tomorrow and like you're saying uh if we're ordering like you know two or three hundred dollars worth of groceries which is i would you know with the five person household what we're kind of ordering i think it's probably 150 to 200 dollars every time we order something we don't care if it's, I mean, it'd be nice if it was 15 minutes, but we're not ordering that for food to eat tonight. We're ordering that food for the next three or four days. So there, this might be marketing or it might be unnecessary, sort of what you're saying for grocery delivery, but for, uh, you know, I ran out of deodorant or razors 
or milk, maybe that's what you want 15 to 24. Am I correct in my uh, assessment of that? You might want, you don't need it in 15, do you really need it in 15 minutes? Not it's at just, all. No. Right. It's just you're no. doing a calculation on your, your time is very valuable, Jason. We know this. And, very true. Very true. Thanks and, for pointing that And your, your arbitrage, you know, there's this now, there's this like flexible, you know, you could do this arbitrage now where you can outsource certain parts of your life. Lots of it, yeah. Um, and so it just has to be better than whatever you can do yourself and you're willing to pay that premium. And they're making it, you know, they're they're using the margin of the products that they're selling to subsidize the the delivery and some VC ah. money as well. But um, you know, you're you're going from a world of, of DoorDash making, you know, contribution margins as a percentage of the GMV that they process of three percent to a potential model where you get about seventeen percent net margins at the store level for these mm. dark stores. And that allowed, and that's after you account for the ca- a cost of delivery and maybe charge a $2 fee to make sure that no one's abusing it and just getting a single tube of toothpaste delivered in 15 minutes, which a lot of New Yorkers are doing right now just to, to kick the tires. Um, ah, so they don't have a minimum on some of these. Therefore, people are right. abusing it. Yeah. And that is exactly, uh, for a little history lesson, in 1998-99, Cosmo had no minimum. And at our office, we did as a joke, five of us all ordered a pack of M&Ms because we were writing a story on it at the same time and had five people show up at the Silicon Alley Reporter office, each of them with a pack of king size M&Ms we bought for $3 or $2 at the time and, uh, you know, gave them a 2 or $3 tip and we're like, these guys just lost 20 bucks delivering this. Um, <laughs> but I guess that's their way. They're acquiring customers. So if they let you have no minimum for your first order, who cares? On the converse side, I just saw news that Amazon for Whole Foods is saying starting, even if you have a Prime account, it's going to be $10 per delivery, flat rate. Explain why the smartest kids in the room who have the most experience with e-commerce have decided to go another direction. It's a great question, Jason. I think it's my take on that. And as I told my readers the other week was that $10 basically positions you I don't know if you've ever read like um, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, sure. but he talks about, you know, pricing pages and everyone always goes for like the middle tier. Sure. You know, so you, I think my personal take is that they did a test. They did a test in like a few key markets like Detroit and maybe Boston, a few other metros. They saw that there was basically very little um, price. You know, pe- people were fairly inelastic. As the, the demand was fairly inelastic when they raised the price. They realized that that actually like helped the bat, you know, the average order economics and then basically used that as a way to propel Whole Foods as the premium tier offering for, of uh, Amazon and that whole f- um, Amazon Fresh would be the kind of free, de- you know, default middle tier mm. kind of offering. And they're going to expand that banner Got across it. the U.S. very aggressively to augment, you know, to give you that kind of 360 omni-channel experience that's emotional to connect back to the online ordering. So I think this is a very calculated play. A lot of people looked at it and said, Amazon is doing this because they can't get grocery right. I mean, I was actually actually signed up last summer to be an Amazon flex driver to do some of these huh. Amazon fresh deliveries. And I can tell you that their cost per order as far as the, the delivery are some of the cheapest, if not the cheapest in the industry, about a dollar per bag that I delivered went to the fulfillment cost. Uh, and when you say fulfillment cost, you mean to, to you me. as the driver? Yes. So what was the typical order size? Five, six bags. And that means you as a delivery person were delivered in half an hour for six bucks. Um, I was making 
a lot more than that. I was probably making somewhere in the range of twenty to thirty dollars, including tips and, and whatnot. But I, I could put uh, the per article. drop off. Per drop off, I mean per, per delivery, drop off not six, per hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Six, six or so. It depends on depends on the the basket. It, it really ranged. There was one guy that had like twelve bags, and I had to schlep it up a a, a staircase in ninety eight degree heat in North Hollywood. You know, there's a couple people that just had two or three bags, and some people I had to get these six pack cases of um, you know vitamin water, whatever. So it, it kind of how do people ranges. treat the drivers overall? I mean, I try to be absurdly generous. I've done okay, but I'm curious how people treat these drivers. Mm. How did how were you treated? You know, anecdotally. Did you feel like people were really respectful and thankful to you? Or do you feel they were giving you terrible tips and just abusing you and abusing the service and kind of took it for granted? I mean, my interaction with the, these Amazon customers was pretty much non-existent. They stayed ah. inside their, their, you know, their nice homes and their gated communities. I drove in. I had a very calculated route. The reason why Amazon is so good at this is they have a milk run. I, you know, I do a single pickup and multi-point drop-off within Got an it. hour and able to make some of the best rates in the industry because they've, you know, basically has all, they have all this demand and it's been promised within a two hour window that, you know, maybe Got came it. in in the morning. How many orders would you, would they send you out with two, three, four? Yeah, maybe like four or five max. And they, they know this, they knew that I had a Jeep, so they knew exactly how many packages to give me oh, or wow. so how many bags to give me per, per pickup. And then you just kind of do like a, uh, you, you return back to the store. And this um, is kind of why the, the vertically integrated model works really well is because when you deal with like a DoorDash, you could be one minute picking up fried chicken sandwiches at Dave's Hot Chicken. The next minute, they're going to send you into an Albertsons to go shop a, you know, yes. 50 item order. And, and the context shift, the context shift for me as a driver is significant and, you know, the efficiencies are kind of lost when you start running around the city and it's just yeah. you're dealing with all sorts of random, you know, temperatures of food and perishables and non-perishables. I got no, I don't want the eggs to break. I don't want all this stuff to happen. So it's very tough when you're doing all this crowdsourced labor and we can talk about the labor. Um, there's, yeah. there's definitely lots of nuances there. One more point on the $10 per Whole Foods order. I saw that as a way, I interpreted it slightly differently, but I, I, I do appreciate your interpretation. You're probably right. Maybe mine is the second reason. Uh, I thought if you are going to do an order and you know it's $10, you uh, and many people do this and I do it, even though it probably doesn't apply to me anymore. I go, oh, it's 10 bucks. All right, I'm going to not do a $50 order. I'm going to do a $150 order because <laughs> I might as well get the pasta I was going to get next week. I might as well think this through. Whereas with Amazon Prime, they specifically trained me to not care. And they're like, would you like these all in one box, you know, on Thursday? Or would you like two boxes Monday and Thursday? And I'm always like, well, I, of course, I'll take it faster. Uh, you know, sometimes I feel a little bad about the environmental stuff and I really don't need it. I will wait two days just to get one box instead of two. And it's literally, I think I'm making that decision based on do I want to open one box or two that I mean, talk about privilege, the 15 seconds it takes to open a box is part of my thinking. This is how far <laughs> we've come in our entitlement. And then the second one in terms of entitlement is like, I'm just feeling guilty about the environment and saying, you know, I want one box, not two boxes, which you know, I guess is the more uh, valid one. But is it also a play to get the ticket sizes to go up? And what what role does ticket size play in all of this, if any? I think you yeah, I think that's a really valid point. I think you have to think about as a consumer, not um, what's the percent, you know, what percentage 
of the delivery am I spending on the actual delivery cost? And, um, you know, if it costs more for me to order, if I'm spending more on the delivery fee for my dinner tonight than the actual food itself, we have a problem. And um, that's when you start to see people try to think about what they might need in advance, you know, for the rest of the week and become a little bit more economical about the number of frequent, you know, trips that they're going to take. And, you know, the one thing tying back to the quick commerce is that I think these quick commerce guys are doing 15, 20 minutes aren't targeting the weekly stock ups that, you know, Amazon, Whole Foods and Fresh are targeting. They're targeting, you know, the two to three uh, top offs that you would do on a, on a, in a week that for the random recipe that you're trying to cook that day, you need some veggies, you need some spices to complete that recipe. You didn't necessarily know what you were going to cook that when you did that Sunday, you know, weekly stock up. Um these guys are attacking the grocers by by going after those um, supplemental trips. Yeah. So you're cooking dinner. You realize you're out of lemons. You're like, uh, I do need lemons in 10 minutes. I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. And hey, since I'm buying lemons, I might as well buy some ice cream for dessert and, you know, get some croissant for tomorrow. That's kind of what these 10 minute commerce companies are aiming to do. Am I correct? It's funny because I spoke to a guy named Barnaby Montgomery who uh, runs Yummy.com and he says that cu customers don't have oops moments in the kitchen. Oh, um, and, interesting. And he, he says that like no one, no one is just cooking a recipe and says, I'm missing an egg. Let me order it right now. Yeah. Um, but it is more convenient and it is a better way of, of living because I, I can spend more time doing, doing my working on my job, making more money than, you know, and, and let someone else go and deliver that for me. It's because I have to go drive to the store, pick it up, shop and check out. And that could take, you know, an hour just to get a few things. Why did this happen in Europe so quickly? Because we're now looking at 10 companies that have gotten significant funding. Uh, this uh, Getir or Getter is from Istanbul. They have a total funding of a billion. Grill is from Berlin has raised over 300 million they're at a billion dollar valuation um and cooking with oil obviously and then you have like flink in germany uh zap is uk based uh deja in uk uh small gope um and that was acquired by gopuff and they got jiffy keju I, I know this was also very big in china but why is this landing in europe as a major trend any, I mean, any theories there? I have some, but I'm curious yours. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's, it's definitely a lot more mature overseas. So I think, you know, D Delivery Hero may, may have been the first one to get into this. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of it has comes, comes down to the fact that they know that the, the labor laws and what's going on as far as, you know, being able to, you know, you saw what happened with Uber in the UK. Um, th we know that... You, that there, the, these, that this is at risk as far as you know being able to rely dependably on gig labor, and so a lot of these guys are doing full time, you know, ah. whatever their equivalent of W twos are. So they own they actually. So they're doing the shifts. Yeah, yeah, they're doing they shift, have shift workers yeah. who come in for eight hours or ten hours or whatever it happens to be, as opposed to people being able to set their own schedule, which fits into the model of the European way of looking at employment, which is you've got you know, employment that is much more stable and less entrepreneurial, saving the judgments. You know, <laughs> I'm sure some people in Europe would like to have flexibility, but their system, I think, trades flexibility and entrepreneurial nature for, you know, um, more security, right? Uh, 
Is it also because of the density of European cities and the fact that these little convenience runs, the propensity uh, or the um, how adapted the cities are towards uh, mopeds or Vespas? Yeah, because absolutely. one thing I noticed is just it seems like all these services are using Vespas, which can go 35 miles an hour, and they typically will outrun a car. Whereas in the United States, we're talking about largely suburba, suburbia, infills, which is between suburban areas and the city. So you, you would have like the city of San Francisco, you might have some infills, which might be, you know, I don't know, uh, the, the areas surrounding the city, and then you have the suburbs. We kind of think about infill and suburbs first for delivery here, and then the density of cities maybe second. Exactly. So they're attacking these kind of cities where there's a lot of e-bikes that Mm -hmm. um, are roaming the streets. And, you know, like there's a guy named Carlos Marino, who I believe is is French, and he's pioneered this idea of the 15-minute city. And this is the Mm -hmm. idea, a very European idea that within 15 minutes, you're within a subway um, or a walk, a subway ride or a walk from, you know, every major um, you know, social service that you might need, um, you know, bars, restaurants, grocery stores, hospitals, um, all, all, all of these essential services are within a fif- are accessible within 15 minutes. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, um, kind of where these guys are, are playing. They're playing in cities like Berlin, where they're, I don't remember the name of the, of what they're called, what they call their bodegas, but there's a bodega like that on, on every block. And, you know, people, a convenience store, yeah. Yeah, a, a convenience store. And, you know, they tend to purchase a lot of their, you know, daily, like fresh produce and, and meats from um, these corner stores and then and get their like, you know, weekly stock up of their, you know, pantry essentials. Um, so it's kind of this like, their express orders are, are more the fresh stuff that that gorillas is really over indexing on which is like the meat and the produce that they do on a daily basis. They go and shop for their fromage and their meats. Yeah, yeah it does seem like these Vespas and, and e-bikes are a, a, a part of this. So what's your prediction uh, for these, uh, you know, 15-minute services? Because they're losing money on every order, it seems. They're underpricing it to get people to create accounts. Is this a sustainable business? Is it a bad business? Or is it a, a good business? Because if they are, if they do have to actually put the cost of the driver in there, I'm assuming they're adding 10 bucks in Europe, 15 bucks to each order in terms of expense, because people get paid well, and they have to have benefits and you pay a lot of taxes in Europe. So in Europe, if they're adding 15 or bucks to every order, does convenience store delivery of $30 ticket make sense when the delivery cost is 50% of the order? And are people not going to walk downstairs and just buy it themselves when they get home? Yeah, I mean that's a great point. That 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 is going to be the test of time is for for these guys is that the percentage that they're spending on the basket on the delivery cost and in certain markets you're going to have higher spend and higher cost, right? And then certain other markets, I think in Turkey, the labor is much cheaper. So, you know, the the the, the delivery cost as a percentage of the AOV, the average order basket is um is a uh, you know, it's lower. So, um so that's kind of it, it's all about the ratio there, um, mm. and so what the opportunity that these guys are are seeing is that this this could eat you know the small to mid middle tier um, convenience stores and retailers in the U.S. So obviously that's a one point one trillion dollar TAM in the U.S. Um, it, I don't have the figures for global, but um, 
that's kind of the what they're looking at and it, and and they they think it's a, a more sustainable model because you're you're you know basically inventorying a store based on um what people are ordering the most frequently uh, right you're skimming the that. cream so you don't have to have as many SKUs instead mm-hmm. of you know a grocery store has 30 40 50,000 SKUs you're talking about what at these stores like 5,000 or something uh it can range from so Gatier does like 1500 GoPuff is like up to a 5000 some of the Bevmos it's acquired we can talk about that but um yeah, yeah Bevmo got acquired that's incredible that was a uh, you know very popular company with its own built-in delivery service that I use Bevmo h- here in the Bay Area and you can put your order in on their site it has a certain window is it as good as like using Instacart Good Eggs Uber Eats or Postmates no it's janky but i used it on the website and it was okay it wasn't terrible it was kind of like a 1.0 if you know uber and instacart are 3.0 in terms of delivery service it's like a 1.0 delivery service but you pick a window and it came they were using outsource drivers at bevmo when i used it here um, over the summer in the last couple of months but i had an okay experience um it seems to me convenience stores might be not a great business it's okay maybe they have a low margin but alcohol is high margin so is the play here that you have an okay business that creates a floor and then you make your profit on alcohol like restaurants do? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's why I I would put GoPuff as the one of the winners in the space. And I think there's going to be different winners for each part of the market. And you might have to segment that by East Coast, West Coast, mm. you know, Biggie Tupac. Um, but, you know, um, yes, I, I do think that the gross margins of a GoPuff are much higher because they've actually gone through the the difficult work of acquiring offline retailers um and they'll go acquire it for like half time sales and then go raise at a you know 13x multiple off of that to- total revenue base between GoPuff and Bevmo and that's All what right. you kind of saw here's a question from our live audience uh from LinkedIn's live stream thank you LinkedIn for including us in the live streaming beta uh works really well by the way Bram Berg asks what unique real estate conversations conversions or repurpose plays are you seeing in the last mile industry retail space especially in the commissary slash cloud kitchen space so mm-hmm. what's happening there in terms of real estate plays because those are real estate businesses more than delivery businesses correct you're talking about cloud kitchens cloud ki- I mean, she's asking about cloud kitchens commissaries yeah. yeah specifically yeah i mean i think the number one player here is travis Kalnick's uh, cloud kitchens which is you know Heard basically buying distressed real estate and, and converting it into you know, basically this last mile infrastructure that is quietly powering um, lots of uh, you know, delivery transactions, mostly delivery, although they have like a facade in front, um, just so it's not blight in a neighborhood. And it's not looked at as a, you know, some tech company's Abandoned warehouse. building or whatever. Yeah, yeah they, they look good. I, there was one across the street from my office in the city mm-hmm. in San Francisco that looked mm-hmm. great. And there's some decent technology going on there. I would order from... Um, starbird and belcampo two really great brands uh and when i would order from those brands which just have incredibly high quality chicken and beef uh, for starbird and um, belcampo respect respectively um i would go there to pick up and it was incredibly sophisticated where they had all the drivers coming in the drivers could see you know on panels where their stuff was the food was in lockers and man they were cranking over there and if you pick up your stuff on uber eats it was zero dollars so I was like, I need to get fresh air. I want to go for a walk. So I'd walk across the street and pick up my chicken and come back. 
and I'd save seven or eight bucks on the delivery cost. And it was the reason I did it was faster. Like, I don't want somebody to drive around the corner with my stuff. It would take twice as long. Um, but that seemed, th- they seem to have some pretty great technology going at Cloud Kitchens. Yeah. They basically had to build it all themselves from, mm. from the ground. So if you look at Cl- Cloud Kitchens is really just a, an umbrella. Uh, it's just one business in an umbrella of a lot of other companies. Um, there's a company that owns the real estate. There's a company that owns a tablet that pipes into all the third-party marketplaces. There's a company that owns these virtual brands with funny titles that sound like BuzzFeed um, mm-hmm. articles. There's another company that is Cloud Kitchens. And so it all kind of accrues back to the the real estate and they're able to generate, you know, abnormal returns uh, on the real estate because they Got buy it. them cheap and they're able to charge very high rents per square foot that are abnormal. If you're a chef and you're looking to open a business, you know, in a city, what is that cost compared to opening a delivery business in, I, don't, I mean, for every one restaurant and storefront you would open as a restaurant tour, how many cloud kitchens could you open in how many cities? Gotta I mean, yeah, five so to one, 10 to one. I don't know. I'm taking a guess. Yeah, you could. I mean, so you you need to spend about uh, fifty to hundred thousand dollars in in upfront uh, capex just on the kitchen equipment, and then you need then you're going to spend a about lease. Uh, the lease is about you know maybe uh, I need to, I haven't I'm a little rusty on these numbers but maybe something in the ra- range of around six thousand dollars plus they take you know something around five percent of your sales. Um, so all in you're looking at you know eighty ninety k. And if it costs you a hundred, you know, so it costs you a million dollars to open up a store. Yeah. So it's, it's about 10%, five, five or 10% probably five, yeah. five, five, sto- yeah, five cloud kitchens for every physical yeah. restaurant, but you can amortize the cost of that mm. kitchen equipment. Yeah. And so you think about it, like if you are a restaurant tour and you've got some amazing brand, man, and you could always open three brands. I mean, that's the other thing that's amazing about this. I, I heard you're talking uh, on another podcast about the early days of Uber Eats. And I guess Jason, who was running it at the time, said they knew that, you know, from the data, hey, there's no ramen, people keep searching for ramen, there's no ramen store, or we're under, uh, we're under ramenized. <laughs> they just said, hey, you know, to three or four other kitchens or cloud kitchens, you might want to think about ramen. And <laughs> you might you may, may hit a winner there. Um, so I, I think that's pretty extraordinary. No? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of where this is all going. I think the tech companies own the demand, right? DoorDash, Uber, Instacart, they have so much great data. Now they need to go, they go back to their retailers and say, hey, we know that there's this demand at this hour of the day for this particular item, whether it's, you know, Mm. um, a late night burger or pizza, whatever it is. And they figure out if you have the right ingredients, you could go and, you know, satisfy this demand on this, on our our marketplace. And it's bet, and it kind of works. For the restaurant because it's incremental it works for the marketplace because they get incre- increase in you know gmv and you know and the customer gets to have some product at the last mile delivered in t- you know 15 30 minutes that they wanted that that wasn't there before it, yeah i mean one example was boba like you, you could be running any food service and you see boba's trending in one neighborhood but there's none in this neighborhood buying a boba machine is de minimis, you know, it just slaps the label on it. So now you're making, you know, uh, chicken fingers and or chicken wings, and you just add boba, maybe add another boba brand, and, and it just sort of combines it there. Here's a question from Bob G. What innovation in both hardware and software in the future will have the most impact on food delivery? Great question. What, what hardware? Let's start with hardware. What hardware, you know, software combination 
is going to have a big impact. On the hardware side, I think, you know, these automated make lines. So Sweetgreen acquired a company called Spice. There's another co- company called Hyphen. Um, what you're just going to start to see some, probably sometime next year is that a lot of the major QS, you know, fast casual brands, the uh, Diggins and Chipotle's and Sweetgreens of the world experiment with, you know, some physical, you're still going to have somebody greet you in the store. But for the for the off premise orders, which could be two thirds of their sales, they're going to have some sort of automated conveyor belt that comes down. And mm. you're going to have, you know, your bowl being this, you're going to have different hotel pans, these big pans where they store all the grains and the tomatoes and the lettuce, and it's just going to come down, dispense it neatly in a nice little radial pattern. And you know, you won't even Beautiful. know that it was made by a robot. So this uh, will take out the need for, you know, prep chefs or chefs or whatever, maybe they'll just be prep chefs and the people who put the salads together. We're investors, of course, in Cafe X, which just reopened at SFO and is doing just amazing. Like they are outperforming the other coffee stores and they can be 24 hours a day, seven days a week and require one hour of intervention per day just to change out the milk and maybe, you know, do a couple of quick cleaning things. So the other one that I think is interesting, um, so you have robotics to prepare the stuff, you have full robotic solutions, which is really only one Cafe X, I don't think anybody else. I've seen tea and frozen yogurt, pizza, everybody's tried a different full service. Uh, Itza, my friend David Freeberg was kind of starting or with that kind of process, and then he moved on to doing software. Um, there doesn't seem to be anybody who's figured out a full robotic kitchen yet, right? Like, the hamburger one, I guess it was called Momentum. I really was rooting for them or the pizza one. This does seem like we're close enough there, huh? I think you're going to have like, you know, it, it's going to free up a lot of the labor to focus on hospitality. And wow. there's still going to be probably prep that needs to be done. But as far as the make line, the actual production process of, you know, whatever you do uh, from, from a scratch cooking perspective that, um, you know, a lot of the assembly lines of a burrito those kind of really mechanic things that someone's doing kind of almost in a robotic like fashion to begin with Mm. are going to be automated. Um, Yeah, we just there's one company doing a French fry automation for fast food restaurants, um, and uh, miso robotics, and I had them on the pod recently. And that seems to be pretty I mean, they've only got like five or 10 of them, I think he said in operation. But I think you'll see like if you can really define the the uh, work like French fries, you could have the french fry station just operating and behind plexiglass and the, you know, people who are making the burgers could be keeping an eye on it. It's really interesting. And then you had, of course, Mr. Beast Burger, uh, which was a lot of fanfare. He organized a bunch of restaurants to just be his cloud kitchen. So it was kind of like a reverse cloud kitchen. He said, hey, if you can make burgers, you can be part of this. And then he used his brand. What do you think of these virtual dining concepts? Is that uh, something that we'll see a trend on? Or do you think that's just like a one-off experiment that didn't work or did work? I think this is just the beginning. I think okay. um, I'll call them host kitchens. So you have, you know, Chili's created this thing called It's Just Wings. And they were able to do that out of their exist, you know, existing stores. And so you're going to see a lot of like multinational brands are already getting into these secondary concepts. Um, Mm. And sometimes it's franchise stores, sometimes it's corporate owned stores, um, but it can really be a boost to their bottom line. Um, And it is incremental because it's not like someone, um, if someone orders it on the delivery marketplace, um, you're happy to pay that commission because 
they weren't looking for you know chilies they're looking they're looking for wings and it just so happens to be fulfilled by chilies so wow. um you know there's a company you know order mark in la that's that's doing similar stuff with next bite um they're getting celebrities in on it i think that the celebrities will churn and burn but i think the the premise of you know restaurants are able to crank out you know uh, multiple of what they were able to do in the off hours um, to mm. fill that underutilized capacity is here to stay. Whether it's a celebrity brand or Jason's brand of uh, nuggets or whatever it is you can dream up is anyone's guess. And that's kind of the fun of it. That's kind of interesting. I, this Denver-based Next Bite I hadn't heard about, uh, but they did Hot Box by Wiz Khalifa. Uh, get it? Uh, brisket burn ends with barbecue sauce, a turkey burger. Basically, I guess... Stuff to um, eat when you're high. <laughs> Hot box, get it? Uh, of course, yeah. Gene Simmons uh, and Paul Stanley of Kiss uh, getting into it. They'll do anything. They sell their brand for anything. Um, but it is a really good idea. And what an interesting idea for Chili's. And I guess they own that uh, Maggiano. But you have this incredible footprint. And you say, yeah, let's just start. Wings are easy. You can teach people how to make wings. People love wings. Wings are high margin. So at some point, like Starbucks is going to look at this and say, hey, we have X number of Starbucks stores. We could have like a little thing in the back of the Starbucks store, or we could be come up with a boba brand. And we don't even have to put boba on the menu. We just have a boba cloud kitchen, although they would they have a strong brand. I think they do have kind of boba s drinks now I saw. Um, but yeah, this this will be a, a, a trend that stays. Yeah, something new comes out trends and then everybody in the country can experience it, it reminds me of the cronut remember the cronut came out in new york and everybody went <laughs> lost their minds exactly. about it and then exactly. people started in on the west coast i remember they made their own version of like donut croissants they got sued or whatever you know you can't trademark a recipe but you can trademark a name but in the cronut cronuts example cronuts could have been deployed nationally within i don't know 30 days or something uh, you could just share the recipe and have a cloud kitchen exactly. open in every city. So that's what we're going to see. Exactly. What about robotic delivery? Is that going to happen? You think you know all these little R two D two robots we see running around cities? Mm -hmm. It's been five years of this. You know they get made fun of on um, you know Silicon Valley and whatever. But it does seem like you know if one of those gets in an accident or gets destroyed or gets run over, it's no big deal. It's like somebody lost their burrito. Nobody <laughs> lost their life. Mm -hmm. Are those going to become a thing? Maybe and if so, when? Yeah. I, I, I wish I could tell you, Jason. I, I think it's going to be, you know, if you think about drone delivery, that's a huge headache because of the FAA regulations. Yeah. Um, autonomous cars, very difficult as well because yeah. you just have so many municipalities you have to go through and and yeah. you're not going to be able to, you know, just you know, brute force your way through here the way Uber used to. So mm -hmm. it's just not going to work like that. It's going to have to involve the cities um and so you're going to see pilots right now already you know kiwi bot on you know college campuses and and i think it's going to work in like corporate campuses educational you know like colleges universities um but as far as like you know connecting the whole u.s into a network of autonomous last mile delivery it would probably be doordash's dream to have that but it, you know that could be decades away most interesting thing I saw as an investor, an angel investor, somebody pitched me on this um, food delivery service on campuses where students would have a big backpack with, you know, 50 items in it, bubblegum, you know, whatever, mixers, whatever, you know, uh, beef jerky, and mm -hmm. they could just run around the campus, anybody who wanted something, meet me here, 
I'll bring it. Have you seen anything like that? Like that would be like the five minute <laughs> hitting yeah. down to five minute. It's like uh, the yeah. pocket watch guy in New York City. Like, hey kid, you want a Rolex? Or exactly, exactly. Uh, did you do you remember that company? <laughs> I was trying to figure out what the name of it was. Uh, or had you ever heard about that one? No, but there's one at UCLA called Duffel that's doing you know basically the last you know the ten minute deli- fifteen minute delivery on on college campuses as a franchise. Ah. Maybe it was Jetpack. Yeah. Sugar, okay. formerly Jetpack. I'm looking at it right now on Republic. Um, interesting. The problem, there are countless moments when you just need something right away. On every college mm-hmm. campus, students need certain product right away. I think they're talking about condoms. During these moments, <laughs> stores are either too far or close. Yeah, that would right. describe it. Uh, or students just don't have the time or energy to travel. Uh, traditional delivery forms take too long, but yada, yada, yada. Interesting. There's a cool one I, I covered recently that was out of Y Combinator called Cash, and it's mm. basically a standalone kind of, I think it's temperature controlled kind of vending machine that only uh, DoorDash and Uber Eats and delivery drivers can access, and you can create any kind of virtual storefront and house that with ah. a certain number of SKUs, and you can deliver um, kind of in, in any area. You don't necessarily need a, a physical retail presence. Um, that's an interesting one. That's interesting. So they make the software, the vending machines. Um, and the hardware. Ah, interesting. C-A-C-H-E. C-H. C-A-C-H-E, like browser cache. Ah, cache. Ah, gotcha. That's interesting. There was another one, which I think was called Bodega originally until they got shamed right. for cultural appropriation, <laughs> which was a, I would say that's an homage, but okay. Um, <laughs> don't cancel me. <laughs> I thought it was an homage. Um, that seemed to be a brilliant one. I don't know what they changed their name in n- their name to, but I had seen one of them and it was a beautiful, like credenza with glass doors. And you could see all of these different beautiful items. You use your app, the app unlocks it. You say what you want to order. And it says, yeah, the Kit Kats are there and the battery pack is there and your lightning cables there. Just take one of each on our system. Yeah. You could clear the whole thing out. But it's got a camera in it. We know that you were the one who opened it. So we got your credit card. If you steal everything out of there, you're going to be in trouble. I'm going to charge you for it. Uh, Bodega is now called Stockwell. That idea is going to work or not? That one, I think, had a hard time because, um, you know, they were targeting a lot of offices and, and that. And it was, like, hard to replenish these things. And bad like timing. Spread. Yeah. So I don't know. I think... I think the the trend of, like, co-locating, like, ghost kitchens inside of apartment buildings that are, like you know, expensive rent. Um, it's like a, a captive market for, you know, mm. a guy like Sam Nazarian has a company called C3, um, which I think SoftBank invested in. And he's doing, you know, all sorts of concepts out of a single kitchen, crispy rice, umami oh, burger, wow. all that sort of thing. And, and that's coming, real estate developers are actually partnering with him, putting these kitchens in the ground floor retail. You could come and order it off the menu or if you ah. live in the building, you could get free pickup delivery. Um, same thing with office buildings. That's fascinating. So you basically um, create like a little single kitchen that will get you crispy rice or whatever. But if you have, well, that's super efficient. So it's almost like having a room service at a hotel. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the building, wow, they can just run up with it. <laughs> Amazing the innovation here. 
Uh, well, listen, how can people find out more? You have a paid newsletter that if people are obsessed about this stuff, they can give you a hundred bucks a year or something. That's right. They can, they can pay up uh, 20 bucks a month or $200 a year for now until the prices increase. Right. People but, paying uh, for that? Who's paying for it? Yes. You gotta, um, shout out to all my readers out there. The, right. um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs in the space and investors cool. and operators. Um, but yeah, it's just hungry.tv, H-N-G-R-Y, hungry with no U, dot right. TV. And you can sign up for the free newsletter if you want to get a taste of the digest. Or head over to the paid um, subscription with Hungry Trends. All right, Matt uh, Newberg of Hungry.tv, thanks for coming on the pod and sharing uh, all of the great wisdom you've learned uh, from studying the space, and we'll have you on again soon. Amazing. Thanks so much, Jason. All right, take care. <laughs>